John chapter 4, I'll read it, follow with me if you would. I'll read verses 6, I'm going to read right through verse number 45. So listen carefully. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour, about noon, that's when it was. All right, there cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, Thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. By the way, the well at that time, they believe, was about 100 foot deep. So that kind of gives you an idea of what she was talking about. From whence then hast that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Well, the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband. And come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, uh, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Well, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto Him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this his disciples came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? The woman left, then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the man, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye that there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? 
Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto eternal life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all things that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. Well, as I said, when it comes to the subject of evangelism and seeing Christ's work in evangelism, actually working, doing the personal work with somebody, I don't know of a passage that parallels this one. It's just so rich. It gives us such wonderful explanation. Everything from the meeting to the conversation to the result to the after result to the uh, admonition to his disciples after this has all taken place. It's very instructive, very helpful for us when we're talking about knowing Christ through his witness because the fact it gives us a great testimony here of what Jesus himself did. Now there's wonderful scriptures, wonderful things that we can resort to throughout the scriptures. We can go to the Acts and see what Paul did, Peter did, and others and the disciples, what Philip did and their work with the other people, but I'll tell you, this one is very, this is unparalleled. It's just a wonderful passage for us to look at when it comes to this particular subject. So um, let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to help us as we uh, uh, look at this once more and uh, just ask the Spirit of God to help us to know Christ through His witness in a better way so that we can not only know Him but make Him known. That's what we want to do. We want to make Him known through what we have learned about Him we want that to be so in our lives. We want, to, we want His work to be uh, an extension in our lives personally. So let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this passage. We thank You for the truths we looked at this morning. We pray, God, that You'd help us, Lord, to have a passion for souls. God, to uh, realize that the time is short and realize, Lord, that souls are eternal and, and uh, we can indeed have a part in people's lives. And though we might not be the one that actually sees it come to fruition, we can have a part in many, many, many people's lives coming to Christ. And I trust that you just uh, challenge our hearts with this and speak to our hearts. God, uh, help us not just to take this as another message and go home and forget about everything we heard. I trust, Lord, that indeed we would, uh, uh, just like the testimony we heard about Daniel, that we would go about, Lord, in the course of our week and witness the people all along the way. And God, so help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we looked at this this morning, um, so um, uh, knowing Christ through his witness, and then uh, we talked about following the follow leadership of the Spirit. That's the first thing, and he must needs go through Samaria. The need arose of the Spirit's leadership. God knows who is ready to hear. Your life is short, and God knows best where our time and influence are best invested. Look at the impact of Jesus for the three years of his ministry, and that'll tell you how important it is. If Jesus had to do it that way, should not we do it that way, obviously. And God works in you to will and do his good pleasure, and part of that is laying upon your heart who to speak to. He'll say to you in your heart, you won't hear a, you won't hear a voice, but you will definitely hear, uh, you will feel the God's Spirit's leadership to say, you can talk to that person and, and speak up and say something, and, and uh, it'll be undeniable. And He works in you to will and do His good pleasure. When God speaks to your heart in that way, you want to obey because He knows something about that person you don't. You say, well, I felt that need one time and I talked to a person, but they didn't get saved. No, 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 you don't understand. They don't have to get saved when you talk to them. You just have to do your job. Because you might be the one who waters, you might be the one who sows the seed, you might be the one who waters again and waters again and waters again, but wherever you fit in the process, we're going to see this later on, you have a reward. 
You have part of the reward, and you will one day in heaven get to enjoy to see some souls, or souls, many souls, hopefully, come to uh, in heaven with you because of the fact that you had a part somewhere along the line. Maybe you sowed the first seed. Maybe you watered, 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 watered. Maybe you were the one who actually got to see the person pray and trust Christ. Maybe you're the discipler. I don't know, but you got to have a part. And so that's the important part. Number two, we talked about... Um, be content with reaching one person at a time. When we look at verse 1, we see Jesus. He's reaching multitudes. The, the, the disciples, I should say, the Pharisees are seeing that he is having such an impact. John the Baptist reached many people. Many people went out to see John the Baptist, but Christ's ministry was actually eclipsing the ministry of John the Baptist. And, and it was noticeable. But here we see Jesus Christ removing himself from the multitude, taking a route that most Jews would never have taken, going through Samaria to get to Galilee, and, and did it specifically to meet somebody that God was directing him to meet. He took time with the one. And uh, so there cometh a woman of Samaria. This tells us that Jesus that uh, us of Jesus reaching many more than John the Baptist. The scriptures tell us of Jesus speaking to multitudes. This passage teaches us the importance of reaching people one by one. We must not allow larger evangelistic efforts to dismiss our personal responsibility to reach individuals with the gospel. As I said, you know, we, we, we need to crank up some of our outreach things. Hopefully this fall, we will be getting some of those things cranked up and get out there and start putting tracks on doors and, 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 and getting the word out. But hey, that does not relieve us of our personal responsibility to talk to people. Just because you go out on a blitz campaign and put 100 tracks on 100 doors doesn't mean, okay, now you don't have a responsibility to win somebody personally or talk to somebody personally about their need for salvation. That's still your responsibility. So we cannot allow mass efforts whether it be an evangelistic campaign, a vacation Bible school, a camp ministry, a, 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 a blitz or an outreach, we can't allow those things to make us think that we're off the hook, that we've done our job in, in reaching people. We need to realize the most effective way to reach people is one-on-one. -on -one. We, we asked this morning, how many of you were reached in a mass campaign? Out of all the people that were here this morning, I think two or three raised their hands. I said, how many of you were reached because somebody took time with you, somebody witnessed to you, somebody sat down with you and gave you the gospel, and most of the hands went up, and the rest of the hands, they were still sleeping. But anyway, uh, but uh, nonetheless, we need to realize that that's where the impact is. Most people are reached one-on-one, -on -one. and Jesus Christ is demonstrating the fact that he is willing to do this, even amid the much uh, that, that he was surrounded by the multitudes in many different ways. Most of the world is one, one by one. Then number three, we talked about evangelism begins with a conversation. You gotta talk. Jesus opened up the conversation. We, we, we realize that according to verse number 27, that the disciples probably would not have said a thing to this lady. They were surprised that he was talking to her. That tells us that if they were in that place where Jesus went to town to get the food, and they were there by the well to sit there and wait for him to come back, that they probably would have said absolutely nothing to this lady. You have to open up your mouth. You have to start the conversation. You've got to say something to people. And so Jesus did just that. He started the conversation. And... Uh, uh, if we say nothing, the gospel reaches no one. Trust the Spirit of God to give you the words to speak. We took you to Luke chapter 12, verse 11 and 12. We talked about this superlative, the superlative, uh, the, the, the situation where you're in a court of law and what you say can either incriminate you, put you in jail, or even cost you your life. And so there's tremendous pressure on you for the words that you speak in those very precarious situations. And God says, don't worry about those. Don't worry about it. I'll give you the words to say in that circumstance. It doesn't mean you're going to escape problems. It just means that God will tell you what to say. And the point of this is this. If God can do that under that pressure, with that kind of anxiety going through your soul, with that kind of, uh, 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 when you know the outcome can take you and put you behind bars or maybe cost you your life, then you know for sure he can do it in any situation less than that. And so we need to trust God to give us the words to say when it comes to talking to somebody. All right? And so God can give you the words to say. How many of you can attest to that? How many of you experienced that before? Okay, a number of you can say yes. I've seen that before. 
I'm calling counsel this week, uh, this past several weeks, and I'm sure you talked to those girls, and there was times that you had to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them, and you probably didn't know what to say, but I'm sure you can tell us about some conversations that turned around in a way that were just wonderful. And maybe you were a little intimidated at first when you first talked to that girl who didn't look like she wanted to be talked to, but then you get up there and you say what you need to say, and lo and behold, that situation turns into something you never expected it to turn into. And that's the wonderful thing about talking to people is that God can give you the words to say and he can work in those hearts. It might not always come to fruition as you would hope it to be, but again, we have to realize this is a process and God includes us. So let him speak through you. That's the point. Number four, don't be deterred by people's differences. Now we said this because everybody's different. If they were all like you, you wouldn't need to win them, right? I mean, so the whole point of the matter is, if you're trying to win somebody to Christ, they've got to be different than you. They've got to believe differently than you. And obviously people believe differently than us to different degrees. I mean, a Muslim thinks completely different than perhaps you would. But maybe somebody else who's a church goer, goer <laughs> a church goer, might be a little bit closer to the way you think. Maybe they're, uh, they're going to church or raised in church like you're raised in church, and so you might have more commonality. Or you might be talking to somebody who's never been in church. My friend J.C. Russell talked to me. I didn't go to church. I had nothing to do with church. I didn't want anything to do with church. But he spoke to me. And he invited me, not just once, but many times. I said no to him several times, but he took no and came back. And I thank the Lord for that. And there's so many people out there that might initially tell you no or go away. I'm not interested. But I want to tell you something. That doesn't mean that there's not an emptiness in their heart. That doesn't mean that there's not a real need and a longing in their soul. A lot of times people don't know what to say, so no seems like the most, you know, the logical thing for them to say just to get you off their back. A lot of people are testing us, too, to see just how much we believe what we believe. I know there's some people that just kind of do antagonistic things just to see how sincere we are about trying to reach them with the truth of the gospel. There are people who actually say that. I just wanted to see how, how much you really meant it, what you were really made of. There are people that will do that. And if we go run and hide the first time somebody barks at us, I want to tell you something, we're probably not going to see much happen. You need to be willing to go back to that. Because then they can see that, hey, this person really means business. They really do care for me. And that needs, to be, that needs to be communicated as we're talking to people. So don't be deterred by their differences. How is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which is a Samaritan woman? It's obviously there was a big difference here. The Jews and the Samaritans, they did not communicate with each other. This woman was amazed the fact that he was willing to communicate with her. That spoke to her there, right there. That he was actually willing to step out of his comfort zone and speak to her. A woman, one, and number two, a Samaritan woman. And so this made an impact. Don't allow your own prejudgment. Now listen to that word. It's very close to prejudice. I use prejudgment because we do this all the time. We prejudge people. We look at them. We size them up. We look at them. Oh, they're mean. They don't want to hear the gospel. Oh, they're big. They don't want to hear the gospel. Oh, they're ugly. Oh, they don't want to hear the gospel. Oh, they got tattoos all over them. They don't want to hear the gospel. Oh, uh, they got earrings. They got 14 earrings in one ear. I know they don't want to hear the gospel. You know, and we, we look at people on the exterior and we size them up and we just think that, you know what? They, that, there's no way in the world they're going to listen to me. Don't do that. Don't prejudge that person you don't know. They might have a hole as big in their heart as you can imagine and they're just waiting for somebody to come by and just tell them what they've been searching for all their life. So many people have been searching for the truth and they're searching for it in all the wrong places. And somebody like you needs to come by with the truth of God and give them the truth that will set them free. Oh, my, what a difference it will make in a person's life if you give them that truth to set them free. And so, don't be deterred. Don't allow your own prejudgment to prevent you from sharing the gospel. The fact that they're different doesn't mean that they are convinced about their difference. Just because somebody is going to a certain church doesn't mean they're convinced that that church is teaching them what they need to know. Just because the person is not going to church doesn't mean they're convinced that they shouldn't go to church. We prejudge the situations and we think this because they're doing something. We take a little snapshot of their life 
and then we see where they are then and there. And we think that they're convinced about that. They are not necessarily convinced about that. Just because they're shacked up or living with somebody doesn't mean that they're convinced that that's the best way to live. Maybe they got in a financial bind and they thought this was the only way out. It was a soft choice. It was a wrong choice. But that's where they are. Maybe on the inside they're just saying, oh, I wish there was some way to get out of this situation. I wish there was some way that somebody can help me. We just say, oh, because they're doing that, they must be this. Not necessarily. This woman... She had five husbands, and the one that she was living with then was not her husband. She wasn't exactly living in holiness. If you looked at her lifestyle, you wouldn't say, yep, there's somebody who wants to get saved. That's her right there. That's probably not what he saw that day. And yet so many, so many times when we look at people, that's what we do. We just say, that's what they are. That's what they are. And we don't know that. We simply don't know that. But that prevents us from talking to people more often than not. You know, sometimes you see some guy, he got this Harley Davidson, you know, he's got these things cut off with leather things, you know, chains across the thing, Harley Davidson across the back, some skull, you know, or tattooed upon his arm, you know, he looks like little Abner, you know, and you're sitting there going, <laughs> that guy don't want to get saved. We had a guy back in California, his name was Chris Brown. Chris, Chris Brown was a biker. Somebody talked to Chris Brown. Chris Brown got saved, and at 60 years of age, Chris Brown went to Africa as a missionary. That was not a likely thing. But somebody talked to Chris Brown. Now, I will tell you, he was a rough cookie when we saw him. I had him in my choir. He was not the epitome of submission. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. There was, there was some sanctification that took place in that choir. And there were some confrontations that we had. I'll tell you what, God worked in his life. Thank the Lord for his sweet wife. You know, if I couldn't do something, she would. <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you, it's wonderful what God can do. So Jesus is the only answer for all mankind. We have to realize that there's not another answer. I don't care what they're into. If, they're not, if they don't have Jesus, they, they don't have it. They don't have the answer to life. They don't have life. He that hath the Son hath life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. You say, well, they're, they're existing. That's all they have. They have existence. They have temporary existence, but they don't have life. They need life. And life is in his son, amen? And we have to introduce them to where the real life is. The real life is in Jesus. People say, get a life. You say, I got it. I've got it. I have got it. Don't let people intimidate you thinking that their fun and foolishness and frolic is more life than what you have in Jesus Christ. No, no, no. You've got the life. You've got Christ. That's where life is. And don't let the devil tell you otherwise. Do dare to share. It shows you care. Dare to share. It shows you care. Yeah, I know you put yourself on the line. You take a chance when you talk to people that you think might not listen to you. Dare to share. It shows you care. Sometimes people, you'll be surprised who'll listen to you. Number five. We didn't do this this morning, so here we go. Number five. Relate what they already know to what they need to know. Relate what they already know to what they need to know. And look at, let's look at verse number 10. Okay, so verse number 10 here. In verse number 10, Jesus says to her and says, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who does it say that he give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked him, and he would have given thee living water. So here he is at a well, and he's talking to this lady about a water that will satisfy her in a way that she doesn't know. So he's taking well water, she came with her water pot to get water that was going to give her water that was going to satisfy her for maybe a day. He was talking to her about a water that would satisfy her, not for a day, but forever. So he took what was known, water, we need water because we're thirsty, right? To something that was not known, living water that would cause you never to have to thirst again. Whoa, what is this? You see what he did. He took something known and related it to what she did not know. And this is how Jesus taught over and again. It's a wonderful way about the way the Lord Jesus Christ went about helping people. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. The well is deep. And again, I said about that time, it was probably about 100 foot deep. And so she was right there. And for whence then hast thou this living water? In other words, where are you going to get this? How are you going to get this water? She says, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the will, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? And Jesus said, answered and said to her, Whosoever drinketh this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him. 
shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him. A well of water springing up into everlasting life. Whoa. <laughs> what does she say on that? The woman said to her, Sir, give me this water. <laughs> I want that water. I want some of that stuff. I don't know why. I've never seen that before. I want that stuff. But what did he do? He took something common as well, water, that everybody was seeking so that can physically exist to something as strange to her as living water that everybody needs so that they can have something in their soul that will take and quench their thirst forevermore. Jesus was great at this. Relating one thing to another, something earthly to something heavenly. And helping them to understand the concept here. And so, I'll give you the verse there. He says, so here he speaks of living water. In John chapter 3, he did this with Nicodemus. And he told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. <laughs> Nicodemus says, well, how, how can you be born again? Am I supposed to enter the second time into my mother's womb and be born? Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. In other words, you don't have to do this over again. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus, marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. And then he went on to explain what the Spirit birth is all about. The wind bloweth where it listeth, thou hearest the sound of, and canst not know whence thou comest, and whither it goeth. And so he explains it like the wind. You can't see it, but you can definitely feel the influence of it. And Jesus explains to Nicodemus, through something he could understand, birth, what he needed to understand, new birth. Physical birth versus spiritual birth. And Jesus took that illustration and helped Nicodemus understand salvation in this way, you see, by taking something very common as birth and relating it to what needed to take place, new birth. He did that in John chapter 3. In, John, in Matthew chapter 7, he speaks of entering a gate. He's talking about entering a gate. He says he likened life unto entering a gate, but the gate to light is narrow. It's straight. It's narrow. It's not broad. Narrow is the way that leads unto everlasting life, but broad is the way to destruction. He's trying to explain that when you're going down life's pathway, you know, there's Broadway's out there. It's amazing that our city streets are named Broadway, isn't it? And what's on Broadway? All the different things that the world has to offer is on Broadway. But where is life? It's not on Broadway. It's on the narrow way. And Jesus explained life in this way, that life isn't the broad way that everybody seems to be trying, everybody seems to be indulging in. Life is the narrow way. That's where you're going to find the life that I'm talking about, in the narrow way. Again, he's explaining this whole concept of spiritual life, and he's using pictures that all of us should be able to understand. He's using the familiar, and he's likening it unto the, teaching them the unfamiliar from the familiar. Matthew chapter 13, he speaks of sowing seed. He talks about ground and he talks about the seed. The sower goes forth to sow the seed and he sows some on stony ground, the place where people are walking, or well, the, the wayside, and then stony ground. And, and then uh, the, and he and explains the different conditions of the soil and the condition of the heart. And the person who receives the soil, the seed, into the good soil of the heart, that's the one that brings forth fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, you see? And so he takes the salvation, and he likens it into a sower sowing seed in the fertile ground of somebody's tender heart. Everybody was, it's an agricultural society. They understood that illustration back then and there. And so that's how Jesus related life and new life to the people back in that day, you see? And then uh, in uh, John chapter 10, he talks about the sheep hearing his voice. He explains how, you know, sheep don't, don't follow anybody. He says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. You know, the hirelings, they come and they try to steal the sheep. No, I'm not the good shepherd, though. And he explains how coming into the fold is like following the shepherd and the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. And he takes all of these illustrations that were so common to people in that day and time. And he likens coming to Christ. He likens salvation unto these different illustrations, these different windows of light to help them to understand what salvation is like. You see? 
And so this is just one of the ways that Jesus Christ did this. He did it numerous ways throughout the scripture. We use a thing called the bridge to eternal life. It's a little track that we use that basically shows how to come to life like you're crossing a bridge over a chasm. You got to get from one side to the other. And so you have to cross over this bridge. Now you can do all kinds of things yourself to try to jump and to span the distance, but you can't do it. It'll never work. You've got to go through the cross, and the cross is that which bridges the one side to the other so that you can cross over through Christ onto the, the life that God wants for you. Jesus Christ is that way to cross over that bridge. So we use an illustration. Everybody understands a bridge. Everybody understands two places that you, know, you can't get to. We understand that. So we use that illustration. That's just a way for us to explain something that ordinary people might not understand or people who are not saved don't understand. So we give them something like that as an aid to help them. It's a window. It's something to help them to understand this important doctrine. And so teach them from the known to the unknown. This is what Jesus did. He taught from the known to the unknown. This is instructive to us, okay? Knowing Christ and making him known. If you know that's how he did it, perhaps that's a clue. That's how we should do it, you know? We see what Jesus did. That gives us a clue. This is how we do it. All right, next, number six. Kindly confront with the consequences of sin and the need of a Savior. Now, look at verse number 16 here. In verse number 16, Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband. Right, right. He's talking about living water. Everything seems to be going good. We're talking about water, having living water. You're not thirsty anymore. Wow, this sounds good. Give me this water. Go call your husband. Now, it would be easy to say, what does that have to do with water? What does that have to do with my wanting to have living water? You know, it has everything to do. And yet Jesus kindly confronts this lady with her sin. And when you're talking to people, you need to kindly confront them with their sin. Now, you don't mean to point your finger in their face and say, you are a sinner, you're going to hell, you're going to split hell wide open. That gets nowhere with no one. Okay? Some people think that that's the way to do it. I think you need to, there's no two ways about it, you need to confront people with the very consequences of their sin, but you have to do it in a kind and tactful way, especially in a personal conversation. So you need to point out to people, you know what? There's something that stands between you and having this living water. Go tell, call your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. That's right, you don't. Truth of the matter is, is you've had five husbands and the guy who you're living with right now He's not your husband either. Ooh. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> wow, who, who told him that? <laughs> but you know what? She took it. She could have gotten mad. Now, some people will get mad when you start pointing out the fact that they might have sinned here or there. And they walk right away from you because you offend them. She did not walk away. She stood, stood there and she kept, kept the conversation going. That means she accepted what he said. She allowed him. She acknowledged the fact that she had sin, and she accepted the fact that she was a sinner. Whoa, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> she could have said, who do you think you are talking to me like that? Now, you know, today, people might say something like that, you know, but that's not what she said. I perceive that I'm a prophet. You must know this from God somehow. So right now, see, God kind of is coming into the picture here. We're going to see him come into it more clearly in just a few verses here. But he's coming into the picture. But he had to point out her sin. And when you're talking to people about their salvation, about their soul's need, you've got to point out the consequences of their sin. Well, let's keep going here. All right. Um, verse 16, 17. It says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that our prophet, our fathers worship in this mountain. Now look what she does. Okay. And people do this on, as, as soon as they acknowledge they want to take it, they want to say, well, you say and I say, and you say and I say, and they want to get into this, you said he said type of thing, okay? You need to get off of that, all right? Because it's not you said, he said, it's God said. You say, that's what we need to get to. It's what God said, not he said, she said, or you say this and we say that. You see, Jesus Christ, he kind of takes it right to the quick here. And so he says, yeah, ye, our fathers worship this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place for the men who ought to worship. And Jesus saith unto her, now look at verse 21. 
When I was reading this, I said, oh, wow, I've never seen this before. Look at verse 21. It says here, Jesus saith unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain, she's talking about Mount Gerizim, okay, that's where the Samaritans worshipped, all right, nor yet at Jerusalem, that's where the Jews worship, worship the Father. Now think what he just got through saying. There is coming a time, dear lady, when it, it's not going to be Jerusalem, it's not going to be Mount Gerizim, that you have to worship the Father. What is he saying? Dear lady, it's not the place. It's the person. It's the person. Don't, it's not, the place is insignificant. It's who you're worshiping and how you're worshiping. That's the significance. Now look what he goes on to say. Okay? So he's really, he's taking and he's bringing this right to God, you see. He's taking this, her sin, and making it in a matter between her and God. Your sin will cause or will destroy your worship with God. You're, you can only worship God in respect to what you do with sin. And so this is where he's taking her. And go, verse 21, he says, Ye worship, ye know not what. He says, you don't know what you're worshiping. Now, that's kind of pointed. He says, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. There is an hour coming when the true worshipers will worship God. Not at Jerusalem, not at Mount Gerizim, but before God himself. He's pointing out that, you know what, there's going to come a time where your true worship is going to come before you and God himself. So he's pointing out the fact that she needs to make things right with God. It's not about the religion. It's about her relationship with God, her worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And he goes on to say that there. Um, he goes on to say, the woman said unto her, I know that Messiah cometh. Well, again, I said, verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And he says that. Now, the woman gets back on track, and she basically is saying, I know that Messiah cometh. Oh, okay. So we're getting back to the Bible now, because see, she knows the Messiah is coming because that's in the Old Testament scriptures. And she says, which is called the Christ. Now she's relating it to what the Jews actually call him in the New Testament. He's called the Christ, the anointed one. So she is identifying the fact, I know there's an answer to this and that Jesus is the answer. <laughs> Little did she know who she was talking to. But she acknowledged the fact that she knew what the answer was. Isn't it amazing how God, how sinners so often know what the answer is? Even though they're not living the answer. They know what the answer is. I don't know how many times I'll go out there and I'll talk to people and they'll say, I know I should be doing this. Or I know I should be living for God. You know, God places that kind of thing, that kind of thinking in a person's heart. He puts eternity in our hearts. He also puts a spot that only God can fill. But notice what he says here. He says, the woman saith, which is called the Christ, when he has come, he will tell us all things. In other words, the Messiah will straighten out this contention we have between us and the Jews. Now look what he says, verse 26. I would have loved to have been there to see her expression when he said this. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Now, I'll just say, just think about what took place at that moment. I imagine there was probably a moment of silence as she digested what he just got through saying. She says, look, I understand you get your opinion, I get my opinion, but when, when the Messiah comes, he will straighten out this whole mess. I know he's coming, and when he comes, he'll straighten it out. Dear lady, I am the Messiah. Is that how he knew I had five husbands? Is that how he knew that the husband, the guy I'm with is not my husband? 
this is all kind of surreal. Is, is, could he, he is. How else could it be? He is the Messiah. Now, you don't see this conversation going on. The next thing you see is her running to the guys of the city and saying, Hey! <laughs> Come see this guy who told me anything I ever did! Is not this the Christ? But there was an aha moment. There was a moment like Paul received on the road to Damascus when he realized the guy I'm persecuting is the one who died for me. Oh. And it's a wonderful thing when you get to see a sinner come to the conclusion that Jesus is their Savior. The lights go on. The heart is enlightened. It's like the songwriter says, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The scales fall off your eyes. I was telling you about that woman who was the abortion doctor and went to church, began reading the Bible, and her exact words was, it was like the scales came off my eyes. And I got to see that God is a God of life. And here I was taking lives. And she realized that she needed that Savior. Folks, it's neat. It's a wonderful thing to see that. And that's precisely what happened here at this moment. This lady got it. She got it. And it's a wonderful thing when you can see somebody get it. And so again, the subject of a person's sin must be tactfully confronted. Salvation is a deliverance from the penalty of sin. You've got to, they, they, they get saved. What is salvation? It's being salvaged. Salvaged from what? Salvaged from the penalty of your sin, for one. Salvaged from the, the fact that sin had dominion over you. You're salvaged from this. That's what salvation is all about. Note the emphasis, verse 21, the admission in verse 25, the confession in verse number 29. Verse number 29, I think I showed that to you here, but verse 29. Come see a man that told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? That's her confession. We're supposed to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Obviously, this lady believed what she knew about what Jesus was talking about there. Number seven, each one of you, each one of you reach, uh, each one you reach will open the door to others. Verse 28 and verse 29. And, and of course, <laughs> and the woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. And folks, when you reach people for Christ, one of the wonderful byproducts is they start reaching others. They reach others. It's, it's a great thing. She left her water pot. What she left was much more fulfilling. I should say what she left was much more, no, what she got was much more fulfilling than what she came for. She got living water. And she took that old pot and left it there. No, I tell you what, when you really find Christ, you need to take the old pot and leave it there. <laughs> I mean, it's just an illustration, but you understand what I'm saying? Listen, forget the old water pot. You don't need that. If you take it and put spiritual significance on it, you know, you don't need the old life anymore. You got something brand new. You got something that will feed you forevermore. And uh, she left that old water pot and she went to tell folks about what she really got. When people truly find Christ, they can't help but share with others, him with others. It's the ripple effect of a true conversion. How many of you know what a ripple effect is? All right, let me show you, just in case some of you don't, okay? All right, ripple effect. Someone gets saved. Boop. Isn't that cute? 
So they tell those that they know. They tell their immediate sphere of influence. When I got saved, first thing I went to them, as I went home and told my parents, and I told my brothers and sisters. I, I told my immediate sphere of influence. Well, and then they tell those that they know. And they tell those that they know. Do you see the concentrical circles that just continually to ripple out from there? And in turn, they tell those that they know. And on it goes, the ripple effect of salvation. Folks, it's a wonderful thing when you see somebody truly come to the Savior. They can't help but speak the things that they've seen and heard. They tell the folks that they know, and they're going around telling everybody what Jesus Christ did for them. And then they get their needs met, somebody else gets their needs met, somebody else gets their needs met, and the ripple effect takes place. But there's something I must tell you. Someone has to start by troubling the water. What do most people say? They don't believe that way. Don't make waves. What are they saying? Don't start the ripple effect. Because it's probably going to have some adverse circumstances. Yeah, you're right. There's probably going to be some waves. But if you never trouble the water, you'll never experience the ripple effect. So, in a kind way, in a considerate way, in a spirit-led way, we need to make waves. We need to make waves. Oh, yeah. It sounds like we should just sit there and say nothing so nobody, you know, nobody will get upset with us and there will be no problems. But the truth of the matter is, we need to make waves. In a kind, considerate, spirit-led way, we need to make waves. Well, I talked to them before. Yeah, I know. And they got upset. Uh-huh, I know. So what do I do? Talk to them again. But they'll, you don't know that. That's what you think. And that's what the devil wants you to think. So the devil wants to silence you. So he wants you to think that if you talk to them again, they'll get even madder at you. I found this out. The more I talked to my dad, he didn't get madder. He asked more questions. And he didn't get upset. And our conversations, even toward the latter part, as we were talking back and forth, was very civil. It started off worse when I first confronted him and said, Dad, you know, I think you need to get saved. Oh, wow. Boom. Talk about, <laughs> it wasn't a pebble. It was a push, you know. Oh, we made some waves. But uh, each successive conversation, it wasn't as troubling. Still made progress. There were still some ripples. But the thing of it was is, we got to talk in a very civil way, and we were able to talk in a very, uh, a very kind way. There was a lady, her name was Rosaria Butterfield. How many of you ever heard that word before, that name before, Rosaria Butterfield? Rosaria Butterfield is, was a liberal, leftist, university teacher up in the Northeast. Billy Graham Crusade was coming to her town, and so she wrote an article against the Billy Graham Crusade and against Christianity as a whole, and she was just criticizing and telling people in her sphere of influence back there in the university. Again, she was a liberal leftist teacher in the university. She was basically telling people, don't go there, this is no good, yada, yada. Okay? Well, she had two different kinds of normal, rea I should say, adverse reactions. Okay? One reaction was from all the people who agreed with her about Billy Graham Crusade and, and people coming to Christ and all that kind of stuff. And so they sent her all this nice mail, you know, good, go on, go on, I'm glad you said that, you know, I agree with you, these people coming here tell us what to do, they're a bunch of junk, you know. And then she had another stack of mail that came from the religious crowd. Who do you think you are talking like this? You don't know what you're talking about. This man's probably done more for it. And, and so pretty much kind of like hate mail <laughs> that she was getting from the religious side. And then she was getting the, the love mail from the people on the left side, you know. And so she got the right and the left, and they just come with adverse reactions to her. So what she did with all the mail, she wrote this letter, and she published it. So she took the mail, and she had basically two stacks. She took all the hate mail, and she put it in one stack. She took all the people that loved her, and put it in the other stack. And so she had two stacks. But she got this one letter. It was from a pastor. And he says, you know, I, I read your article, and uh, to be very frank with you, I, I really don't agree with you on this, but I would love to sit down and talk with you about this issue. She didn't know what to do with this letter. I mean, it was definitely not in the love mail. <laughs> and, and yet it wasn't 
in the hate mail either because she knew that he disagreed with her position, but he wasn't adamant calling her names and, and basically talking to her like she was, you know, scum of the earth type person. And she went back and forth, back and forth, so finally she didn't know what to do with it. She crumpled it up and she threw it in a garbage can because she didn't know what to do with this letter. Finally, till the end of the day, she just, her conscience got the best of her. She went back to the garbage can and she took the letter out of the garbage can. She, she took it, she wrinkled it, uh, got it all unwrinkled. <sighs> what am I going to do with this letter? So she finally, after several days, called the pastor and said, you know, I really don't know how to take this. I've never had a letter quite like this before, but you said that you would like to sit down and talk with me about this article, and nobody's actually approached me about this fashion before. I'll take you up on that. We'll go to lunch, and I want to hear what you have to say. And so that pastor sat down with her. He and his wife sat down with her. For two years, had her over their home, had her in the home, talked with her. They had many conversations that went on for many hours. But after two years, that leftist, liberal, lesbian writer, university, she got saved and trusted Christ as her Savior. Amen. Now she is a pastor's wife up in the Northeast. She came to Christ and she wanted to give her life to doing the same thing. Rosaria Butterfield, that's her first name. I'm not sure what her last name is now because she married somebody with a different last name. But she's got several books out. But what I'm saying is, is the way that she was approached by that pastor with love and with concern and with truth. Now he didn't back up and he didn't say, oh you're right. No, he, he he gave her the truth of the word and allowed the truth to set her free, but he was patient with her through the process of helping her to come to the understanding of who Jesus Christ was and what he had done for her. And I thought that was a great illustration of what needs to be done as we're trying to bring people to Christ. Now, not everybody's going to come first time they hear the gospel. Now, I did. First time I heard the gospel, I came to Christ. But they say most people take uh, seven times. Some people say 14 times. Well, it took me one, so it must take some people 28. I don't know. You know, all I know is that, is that we have to be patient as we talk with people. I know, I know Juan and Angel talked about their neighbor, and, and on many occasions they have tried to, to reason with her, talk with her, love her, care for her, explain to her. And I say, don't give up. Don't give up. You just don't know that one of these days that dear lady, you know, we've been praying for her, she might come to Jesus Christ. I know this. You'll not waste, you haven't wasted any time in trying to tell her the truth that'll set her free. And I encourage you to keep that up. Um, okay, let's finish this up. The fulfillment of seeing people saved is beyond description. Jesus says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. That's what Jesus said. That's <laughs> You know what, for him to say that must tell us that that's a pretty satisfying thing. Nothing will satisfy your soul quite as much as having a part in the salvation of an eternal soul. It just won't. Nothing will satisfy your soul like this. I mean, w women have children, and they go through labor, and it's horrible for some of them. But on the other side of labor, it can be just a matter of minutes and sometimes hours, they can look at that little child and forget all about all the labor, all the heartache, and all the things that they, they went through, and the pain, and the months, and the nine months of, of, of problems that they went through, because now they got that little baby they're holding on to. And you know something? When you get to see somebody that you've labored to see come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, it is satisfying. It's fulfilling. Jesus says, it's, I have a meat. The disciples came back with the food, and they said, uh, give him something to eat. And they said, he said he's already eaten. What? He said he's already eaten. He said, he says, he has, he's, already, he's already eaten. Who, who fed him? Jesus says, I have a meat that has satisfied me that you just simply don't know anything about. And if it's that satisfying to Jesus, I'm telling you, it'll be that satisfying to you. When you get to see somebody come to Christ and realize that they are going to heaven forever, they have eternal life, and you had a part in that, and you will be with them forever, and they will be with you forever, how can you put words of satisfaction that would aptly describe what has just taken place? 
it, it, glorious. I mean, just use whatever words you can think of. It's just as great as it can possibly be. My dad passed away back in 1994. Well, there you go. I'm not sure who did that. Maybe it was the angel. <laughs> Maybe Clarence is trying to ring a bell up there. I don't know. But, uh, but it was a glorious thing for me to know when I was there behind, beside his casket to know that I'm going to see my dad not just again, but forever. Forever. My sisters, my brother, their spouses, their children, I'm going to get to spend time with these forever. My grandkids, I see them now, once in a while, here or there. But I'm going to get to see them forever. Forever. And so I say, you know, I say, oh, I bet you miss your kids. Well, I do. I do. But I'm going to get to see them forever. I thank the Lord for the time we had them for the here. But I'm going to get to be with them forever. Because they've trusted Christ. And, and there's a host of other people that can fit into this wonderful category of people you'll spend forever with. And you simply have to share, the, share with them the truth that'll give them that privilege and you that privilege with them. You'll treasure this forever. This will forever be grateful for your part in pointing them to Christ. Forever. You'll be grateful for it. This is a joy of life that will never get old. I think, think of what this means in heaven as I just described. Number nine, I'm almost done here, I'm almost done. All right, this can be your experience even today. Because now Jesus goes on and he's, he takes his disciples and he begins to talk to his disciples about this experience now. And he says to his disciples, Say not ye that there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. What, what, what is that saying? Well, that just doesn't happen these days anymore. You, you got to wait for four months, you know, then the harvest is going to come. We just don't see people saved like that anymore. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He says, say not ye, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Don't be saying that. Don't be thinking that God isn't saving people anymore. Don't be thinking that God doesn't save sinners anymore, that, that, that people don't get saved anymore. Don't be saying that. He's teaching them now. Okay, Jesus just had a wonderful experience there at the woman at the well. And he's saying, don't be thinking that you have to wait for some far off time for you to experience the same thing. That's not true. He says, behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white, all ready to harvest. You should not be saying people are not just getting saved anymore. Shouldn't be saying that. Because when you say that, you talk yourself right out of, you just, you just basically knock the props right out from under you. You don't participate in the process. If you're saying it's not happening anymore, it's just not happening in our country anymore, our country's gone too far, we're too far down the hill, there's no way that we can, it's happening in China, it's happening, you think China's looking good now? Well, well, uh, well it's happened over to Iraq. How do you think Iraq looks like now? I mean, are these places the epitome of Christianity? And yet people are getting saved there. Say not ye, there are four, yet it's four months and then cometh harvest. Lift up your eyes, look on the fields. Souls are ready. This is what he's saying. Souls are ready to harvest right now. Amen. Amen. Oh, that was weak. Amen. Yes. Praise Praise the Lord. Lord. <laughs> you don't sound convinced. Hallelujah. All right. <laughs> they are. They are. They are. You got to believe that. Because if you think there's four months yet to harvest, you say, well, I don't have to say anything to anybody now. I'll wait till all of a sudden a great revival sweeps across our country and then I'll start talking to people. Mm -mm. You need to sense the urgency right now. Realize there, people will get saved right now. Right now. In your day and time. I mean, today, tomorrow, this week, this month. People are ready to get saved. We need to lift our eyes to heaven. He says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. Now, I, I, I almost take to think that this is two different things. Lift up your eyes. You know, Psalm chapter 5, verse 3 says, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. 
in the morning, will I look up and make my prayer unto thee? I, I tend to take these two phrases and say, well, why didn't he just say just one? Why did he say, lift up your eyes and look on the fields? Now, I guess you can say, well, our eyes are not lifted up because they're down, because we're discouraged, because nothing's happening, so look up. But if I say look out on the field, then I am kind of looking up. So I'm thinking that the look up is look to God, and then look out is looking on the people. Lift up your eyes to God. Pray to God and ask him to get you involved in the process of seeing people saved. And then get your eyes and look on the fields because they're out there. They're out there. You'll see them. Why aren't we seeing them? Because we're not looking for them. Well, what are we doing? We're going to the grocery store. We're going to Walmart. We're doing our job. We're running to lunch. We run back home. We got umpteen things we have to do. We're checking off our to-do list. And then we're dead, we're dead dog tired and we go to bed. And then what? Same thing next day. And then what? Same thing next day. Except you come to church on Wednesday night, dead dog tired. <laughs> and then what? Same thing. And life goes on. And we haven't lifted up our eyes and looked on the field. We haven't lifted up our eyes to God and said, God, would you create a divine opportunity for me today? Would you show me where I can go today, where I can talk to somebody and meet their soul's needs? Just like we talked about, you know, with, um, uh, um, what's his name? Um, Howard, oh, no. Walter, Wilson. Walter Wilson. He left his room there in New York City. He says, God, direct me to somebody who needs you. Within just a few minutes, he was in a, in a, in a stationary store with a man. He says, you, you got God? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You found God? Yeah, God. He said, you found God? Yeah. Where is he? He showed him where he was. God saved. Wow. He prayed that prayer. 20 minutes later, here's another person. Trusted Christ as a Savior. Lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. Look at people's eyes. You'd be surprised who will talk to you if you look at them. And you open the conversation and start the conversation and allow God to transpire. If nothing else, give them a track. We need to look on the fields with expectation that God will give us divine appointments. Expectation. All right. Every one of us can have a part in the reward. And he that reapeth, and this is what Jesus is saying, look, look guys, he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that, or in order that, both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. In other words, he that sees a person saved and he that did the sowing in the beginning of that person's life to bring them to the place where they finally did get saved and they saw fruit, they both rejoice. They both are going to rejoice, and they're both going to have reward. We think that the person who's going to have the reward is the person who actually got to see them bow their head and pray and ask God to save them. Oh, no. Everybody in the process gets to rejoice and receives the reward. He says, and herein is that saying, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon Ye bestowed no labor. He says, I sent you out to see a harvest in the lives of people that you just spoke the word to and they got saved. You didn't bestow the labor that went into the foundation. Somebody sowed the seed. Somebody watered, watered, watered. And you got to show up and say the word and those people got saved. I sent you out and it was all prepared for you. You just said the word they got saved. You got to see it. But you didn't bestow the labor. The labor went on before. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. Jesus is instructing us here. Every one of us can get on board here. Every one of us can have a part in somebody's salvation. Now, you might not be the one to see them actually trust Christ, but if you give them a track, you're part. If you give out 10 tracks, you are the part of 10 people that could get saved. If you give out 100 tracks, you become 
You have the prospect of being a part of 100 people who might get saved. You say, well, all 100 won't get saved. Maybe not. But what if 10 did? You can have a part in the salvation of 10 people's souls just because of the fact that you watered or perhaps you sowed the seed to begin with and you will get to rejoice in that day because you will receive the same reward as the person who actually saw them pray and trust Christ or disciple them and brought them to fruition. You see, everyone can have a part. It's a neat thing. With every word you speak, with every tract you give, with every prayer you pray, for everyone that you know that needs Christ. So let's review, and I'm done. Knowing Christ through his witness, follow the leadership of his spirit. We want to know, how did Jesus do it? Okay, he followed the leadership of his spirit. Number two, be content reaching one person at a time. It doesn't have to be masses. Don't think it's just the masses. One person at a time. Number three. Evangelism begins with a conversation. Speak up. Say, say something. Just say something. Get the conversation going. That's what Jesus did. Don't be deterred by people's differences. People are going to be different. Different religion. Different, different way of looking at life. That's, but, but, but they need Jesus. Every one of them need Jesus. Don't be deterred by the differences. Number five. Relate what they already know to what they need to know. Take commonalities. Work from the place of commonality. Show them things that are simple and relate the spiritual from the simple. Number six, kindly confront them with the consequences of sin. They have to, listen, salvation is our relationship. We're saved from the penalty of our sin. Sin has to come into the picture. We've got to talk about sin. We've got to talk about the Savior. And then... Uh, each one of you reach, uh, each one you reach will be open doors to reach other people. Every person you reach knows people you don't know. Knows other people that need to be reached as well. Number eight, the fulfillment of seeing people saved is beyond description. When you start to experience it, you won't be able to describe the joy that will come into your heart, the fulfillment that you'll experience. Number nine, this can be your experience even today. You don't have to wait four months. You don't have to wait four years. You don't have to wait till you're an old person. You don't have to wait till you're uh, 82. You can experience this even today. And last here, every one of us can have a part in the reward if you become part of the process. Folks, John chapter 4. It's just a great chapter on the subject. This is what Jesus is teaching us. We, we want to know him. We want to know how he did it. We want to know that because that, that's, that's how we make him known. We make him known the same way that he revealed himself to us. And he revealed himself in John chapter 4 this way. We can make him known the way he reveals himself to us. That's what it's all about. We know him, so we can make him known. We, he made himself known to others. We can do the same thing. That's why we want to know about him. We want to know about Christ. We want to do it as Christ would have done it.